And once again, John chapter 10. How long is eternal life? Well, eternal life is forever. You say, uh, how long is forever? For eternity. Um, Some people have a hard time with that. But here in our text this morning in John chapter 10, we find that this is the great theme that Jesus is going to uh, speak about. You know, all people, especially children, have a basic need of feeling secure and loved. You know, kids need to grow up in a family where parents love one another, uh, where children feel safe and are assured that their parents love them no matter what uh, they do. You know, if parents were to withhold their love as punishment for disobedience, the children would not feel secure, would they? And uh, they would not strive to earn their parents' love. You know, it would be a terrible thing for a parent to say to a child, now, if you don't obey me, I'm not going to love you anymore. That's one of the most awful things I think you could ever say to your children. But you know what? The same thing is true spiritually. God wants his spiritual children to know that he loves them and accepts them through the death of Jesus Christ on their behalf, and not because of something they've done or how they've performed. He wants us to know that we are eternally secure in our salvation, even when we fail, even when we sin. As a loving Father, He will discipline us for our good, so that we can share in His holiness. But He's not going to withdraw His love, or He's not going to cast off off His children. It's important in our spiritual growth, that we know and we feel that our salvation is secure forever. It's a sad thing that many teach that Christians can lose their salvation if they sin. Now, there are some difficult texts in the New Testament that they like to think teach that. Some of the warnings even in Hebrews but it much, it's much easier to explain those texts from the foundation of texts that have given solid assurance of eternal security rather than the other way around. But our text here this morning is no stronger passage in the whole Word of God that can be found that guarantees absolute security of every child of God. Our text teaches us that Jesus' sheep are eternally secure because the Father gave them to Jesus. Jesus gives them eternal life, and both the Father and the, and the Lord Jesus keep them. Now, there was a two- or three-month gap between the discourse that we found in chapter 10, verses 1 through 21, and that of our text where we began here this morning in verse 22, although the subject matter ties in with the theme of Jesus as the good shepherd of his sheep, We talked about the Feast of Tabernacles. That took place in the fall of the year. It was the setting for chapter 7, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 21. But now it's winter when the Feast of Dedication takes place. And this feast was not prescribed in the Old Testament, but rather it began when the temple was rededicated in 165 B.C. after the Maccabean Revolt threw off the rule of the evil Antioch. Antiochus Epiphanes, 
And it's still celebrated today. But it's called Hanukkah. And it's, or sometimes called the Festival of Lights. Now notice here in verse 22, the last phrase there, and it was winter. Now how appropriate is that? Now it's not too winter-like out there today, but it's still cool. Some say cold. Pretty frosty this morning. Here it is, winter. Now some of you I know really enjoy winter. You, lo- you love the snowstorms, the wind, the sub-zero temperatures, the ice and the slippery roads. You love it, don't you? And I guess I do too, if I have to. Okay, it's where God put us. No, winter usually indicates a change from pleasant weather to a more unpleasant weather. And so that's the change we find here in our text here. There's a change in verse 22. And it is winter. Jesus, uh, through the nation of Israel, in a sense, uh, uh, or is through with the nation of Israel. He's kind of is uh, uh, fed up with them, so to speak. And so from here on, the Gospel of John, talks. he's talking to his own children. Now, the people of Israel are supposed to be God's people. Well, we find here many of them are not his sheep. They're not willing to follow the good shepherd. And from this point on, he's going to be talking to his sheep, and he will not make another public call. It'll be too late for harvest. And the Lamb of God is being shut up in preparation to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. Listen, I want to remind you this morning, And even those of you who would claim to be one of the sheep of the Good Shepherd, but you're not willing to follow the Lord in faithfulness and obedience, you can play that thing too long. Winter is coming. There will be a day when you won't be able to witness. If you're going to do anything for God, you'd better get busy doing it now. Winter is coming. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, may I remind you that winter will come for you as well. There does come a time when it's too late. Too late to be saved. You can persist in rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ so long as you finally, that you finally are unable to accept him. The prophet spoke of this eventually in Jeremiah 8:20. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Now you notice here in verse 23, it speaks of Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch was the one portion of the temple which had escaped the destruction by the Babylonians. It was an area with columns and kind of a porch-like roof, kind of giving protection from the elements, and it might be implied that The winter weather was uh, not very good here, and that's why Jesus went to this area of the temple to seek some cover from the weather. And John, who loves symbolism, may want us to see that Jesus fulfills all that this feast stands for because he is the new temple, and just as God delivered his people under the Maccabeans, so he delivers his people under the Lord Jesus John's mentioned that it was winter 
may also hint that the Jewish leaders who were rejecting Jesus as their Messiah were in spiritual winter. Notice again verse 24. Then the Jews round about him, uh, or came round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. The Jewish leadership again confronts Jesus. They seek to ensnare him. They want to give. Uh, uh, they want to have a reason to arrest him. The question here: How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. That was not something they were actually contemplating. If Jesus were the Messiah, rather they wanted him to openly declare that. Why? Well, then they would have occasion to accuse him of insurrection, which they later did before Pilate. And Jesus is aware of their strategy, so he, we notice how he answers them. And from his reply, we learn the basis of our security as Jesus' sheep. Look at three reasons his sheep are secure. Three reasons. Number one, because the Father gave them to Jesus. Now again, you might wonder if the Jews' request was sincere, and I don't believe it was, but they were not coming to Jesus with an attitude, uh, you know, we're we're willing to bow before you as our Messiah, but could you just kind of clear up a few questions for us? That wasn't their attitude. Rather, they were blaming Jesus for their unbelief. They were saying, in effect, if you would just make yourself clear, maybe we believe you, and it's your fault that we don't believe you. It's a common way of thinking, isn't it? Ever since Adam and Eve continues to this very day, people want to blame someone else for what's going on in their lives. And they refuse to take responsibility for their own sinful choices. There may be someone here today that's blaming someone else for what's happening in your life. Jesus knew the hearts of all these people. He knew that these men were not seeking answers to legitimate questions. And so he replied in verse 25 and 26, I told you and you believe not. They said, how long is it going to be before you tell us? And he says, I told you and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you believe not, because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you. Now, when Jesus told them that he was the Messiah, the only time that he had clearly stated that previously was when the Samaritan woman uh, was by the well. Because the Jewish leaders had a political idea of the Messiah as one who would flee from Rome, Jesus had not told them directly that he was the Messiah because they wouldn't have understood. But if they had only had ears to hear, they could have recognized who Jesus was through John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus as the Lamb of God and the Son of God. And they could have heard it in Jesus' astonishing words back in chapter 5, where he claimed to have equal honor with the Father and to be able to give life to whomever he wished. He claimed that the Scriptures testified of him, and that if they came to him, he would give them life. They should have heard it. They should have heard it in Jesus' claim to be the bread of life. 
and his promise to raise up all whom the Father had given him on the last day. They should have heard it in Jesus' claim to be able to satisfy the thirst of all who believed in him and to claim to be the light of the world. They especially should have heard it in his claim before Abraham was, I am. They not only had Jesus' words, but also his works that he did in the Father's name. And the Jewish leaders had seen and heard about many healings, including the lame man by the pool of Bethesda and the man born blind. He had miraculously turned the water into wine. He had fed 5,000 men plus women and children. But none of this resulted in their believing. Rather, they were becoming increasingly hardened in their rejection of Jesus to the point that when he, in the next chapter, in chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead, they're even more determined to kill Jesus. So why? Why, in spite of all of this evidence, were the Jewish leaders so adamantly opposed to Jesus as their Messiah? Well, in verse 26, Jesus tells them, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Jesus recounts back several months earlier when he had made the point in chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, that they were not his sheep, and therefore they didn't know or recognize him. They presented themselves as pious religious leaders when in fact they were wolves in sheep's clothing. And twice in these verses, verse 25 and 26, Jesus confronts the unbelief that these Jewish religious leaders were wrong. He confronts them with their unbelief. But at the same time, he tells them that the reason they don't believe is that they're not his sheep. Now in verse 29, he says that, His father gave the sheep to him. He says the same thing in chapter 6, verse 37. All that the father giveth me shall come to me. It says it also in chapter 6, verse 39. And this is the father's will which has sent me, that of all of which he hath given me, I shall lose nothing, but shall raise it up again at that last day. In his high priestly prayer, we're going to find in chapter 17, Jesus repeatedly refers to those whom the father gave him. So the point here for us is that as Jesus' sheep, we are secure because the Father gave us to Jesus. Secondly, his sheep are also secure because he gives them eternal life. Now, consider two things here. First of all, eternal life is a gift that Jesus gives to his sheep. Verse 28 says, and I give unto them eternal life. I want you to notice this is a claim to deity. No one but God can give eternal life to anyone else. The Pope can't do it. I can't do it. Nobody can do it but God, Jesus Christ himself. And so Jesus, when he says this, he's saying, I am God and I can give you eternal life. It's a gift that shows that it was not merited or earned it's a gift it's an undeserved gift not a wage and payment for good works and because of our sins we deserve his wrath and he gave us eternal life so it's an important to answer the question how can we know if we receive this gift of eternal life well eternal life is a gift you can know you have You don't have to be sitting there this morning wondering, I wonder if I have the gift of eternal life. I wonder, I wonder. No, you can know that. 
You just need to ask yourself three questions. Number one, do you believe in Jesus? His sheep believe in him. I'm inferring this from Jesus' indictment of these Jewish leaders in verse 26, but ye believe not because ye are not my sheep, as I said unto you. This is an implication that his sheep do believe in him. To believe in Jesus means more than intellectually believing as he who uh, is who he claimed to be, because the devil believes in Jesus in that sense, but he's not saved. To believe in Jesus is committing your eternal destiny to what he did for you on the cross. Rather than trusting your own good works as the Pharisees were doing, you see, you must see yourself as guilty sinner and trust that Jesus' death paid the penalty for your sins that you, you deserved. The second thing is, do you hear Jesus' voice? Notice in verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice. Jesus was not referring to hearing an audible voice or some mystical inner voice. He meant that the testimony by him and about him in God's word, the Bible, rings true in your heart. When you read what the word testifies about Jesus, you say, yes, I believe it. It means hearing in the sense of obeying. You desire to please the shepherd who gave his life to make you his sheep. You don't say, well, Lord, Lord. And then you keep on doing your own thing. No, you become obedient from the heart to his teaching. And then thirdly, does Jesus know you? You see, it says here in verse 27... Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep follow him. And I know them and they follow me. As God, Jesus knows everyone, of course. But this refers to an intimate knowledge, to a personal relationship. We saw it in chapter 10, verse 3, where Jesus says that the shepherd calls his own sheep by name. He repeated in verse 14 when he said, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. And because the sheep are known by the shepherd, they know him. They trust him. They follow him wherever he leads. Now, do you have a close personal relationship with the Lord Jesus? Does he know you and do you seek to know him better? Do you obey his word? You can know that Jesus has given you eternal life if you've received a gift, it as a gift through faith. And then if you obey his voice and have a relationship with him and follow him, So Jesus' sheep are eternally secure because the Father gave them to Jesus and he gives them eternal life. Jesus' sheep are eternally secure. Thirdly, because both the Father and Jesus keep them. Now I want you to notice four things here. First of all, by definition, eternal life is eternal. You say, duh. Some people have a hard time with that, though. Eternal life, by its description, is not temporary life. It's eternal. When you get saved, you get saved eternally. You don't get saved for a couple of days, and then you have to get saved again and get, you know, it's not a temporary life, it's eternal life. Jesus indicated there are two, and only two, eternal destinies. 
Matthew 25, 46, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everla- or, uh, righteousness into life eternal. Only two possibilities. There's no in-between either, okay? It's eternal life, and if God gave it to us, Jesus says we will never perish, and then it is eternal life. If you could lose it, it would not be eternal. So by definition, eternal life is eternal. Secondly, Jesus promises to keep his sheep. Verse 28 says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. If Jesus' sheep could perish, it would mean that he failed in his mission not to lose any of those the Father gave him, as we saw back in chapter 6. Jesus indicates that some Thieves and robbers will try to snatch the sheep away out of his hand, but the omnipotent Savior, Jesus, will prevail. Now, if we wanted to use another biblical uh, analogy, we could say we are a part of the family of God. When we get together as families for one reason or another, as some of you did this past week, or as you do from time to time with a family reunion. You know, we often see family members we haven't seen for a long time, don't we? And I hope that you adults, that people aren't saying, my, have you grown, you know. Now that's something you might say to a child. But that's not necessarily something we adults have liked to to hear. My, how you've grown, But they might say something like, well, you know what? You look just like your dad. Or you look just like your mom. There are times when a family member doesn't show up for one reason or another. Maybe they're called the black sheep of the family. The wayward one. The one who's gone off on their own way and they don't want anything to do with the family any longer. But guess what? They're still a member of the family. No one can disown or be made a non-member of your family. Once they're born into your family, and once you're born into that family, you're stuck. (laughs) So it is with the family of God. It's a very clear picture that God gives to us in His Word. He has caused us to be born again. We cannot get unborn. Now, no doubt all of us know people who seem to be Jesus' sheep, but they fell away. Some cases they would deny the Savior and that they once professed to believe in. You may wonder, well, are they saved? Again, only God knows their hearts, but we can know this. If they truly possess eternal life, they will be miserable in their sin and their unbelief. If they can be comfortable in their sin and indifferent about denying Christ, they do not give evidence of being his sheep. We should not give assurance of salvation to people in that condition. I think that's one of the things in dealing with people and the spiritual level we have to be very careful with giving them a false sense of assurance. 
We should not give assurance of salvation to people in that condition. If they're miserable, then urge them to repent, to receive God's forgiveness. And the minute they do, they can be assured that they are one of Christ's sheep and he will keep them into eternity. And so Jesus promises here to keep his sheep. Number three, Jesus promises that the Father will also keep his sheep. Look at verse 29. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Jesus' sheep have double protection. Jesus has them in his hand, and the Father has his hand around Jesus' hand, so to speak. So a thief would have to get through two omnipotent layers of protection to deal with Jesus' sheep. Now, some argue that a believer can remove himself from Jesus or the Father's hand. But again, that subverts Jesus' promise here. He says, very plainly, they will never perish. And surely he knew that our greatest enemies would be ourselves. If believers could lose their salvation by sinning, then every believer who's ever lived would be lost because we've all sinned after coming to faith in Christ. And that would leave a gaping hole in the promise of salvation. Listen, when he gives us eternal life, that means we don't earn it, we don't work for it, he gives it to us. Not that it is eternal life, it's forever. If it wears out in a week or a year or until they sin, then it is not eternal life after all. Not really his sheep if life does not last forever. Now we as sheep can be in danger, but the shepherd will protect us. We may be scattered, but he will gather us up again. We shall never perish. He says they shall never, they will never perish. Now when Jesus says the Father is greater than all, he means that there is no power in the universe more powerful than the Father, including our stubborn flesh. Satan and his demonic forces are powerful, but they're no match for the Father. Jesus was not denying his own deity by stating the Father is greater. There is a hierarchy in the Trinity where the Father commands, the Son obeys, and the Holy Spirit carries out the divine plan. And Jesus' point is that his sheep are secure because both he and the Father keep them. And then, fourthly, notice Jesus asserts that that he and the Father are one. That's in verse 30 here. He says, I and my Father are one. Some commentators say that Jesus only means that he and his Father are united in their resolve to keep all the sheep. But that view doesn't take into account the Jews' reaction, which we're going to see and look at uh, later uh, today in, in tonight's message. But they tried to stone him because they charged, Thou being a man, makest thyself God. They got the point. Jesus was claiming to be one with the Father in his divine essence. And John began in John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this strengthens the last point, namely that we, if both the Father and the Son promise to keep Jesus' sheep, then our salvation is eternally secure. 
I read an account of a sheep rancher who had 2,000 sheep and someone had to be watching them all the time. If two little sheep would go over the hill and get a half mile away from the flock, they were lost. They couldn't find their way back. The only way in the world they could be safe is for the shepherd to be there. And if a wolf would come along and eat up one of those lost sheep, you'd think the other one would be smart enough to say, you know what, he ate my little brother, I'm going to go back over the hill and go back to the flock. No. He doesn't know where to go. All he does is go bah and run around and wait in the desert for the wolf. Now I know this might not sound very good to you, especially when you and I are referred to as sheep, but sheep are stupid. A sheep has no way to defend himself. A sheep can't even outrun his enemy. If a sheep is going to be safe, it's not because the sheep is clever or smart. It's because he has a good shepherd. Now, when I say to you that he gives me eternal life and I shall never perish, you may accuse me of pride, arrogance, but no, I'm not boasting about myself. I'm bragging about my shepherd. I'm praising God for a shepherd who has provided me so great a salvation. Salvation that cannot be lost, cannot be stolen, cannot be undone. And if you have a wonderful salvation, you have a wonderful shepherd who will never lose any of his sheep. Some say that if we are eternally secure, it will result in Christians living in sin. Spurgeon replies to the charge that if you think you're eternally secure, you're just going to live in sin. He says this, shall I come to your house and tell your children that if they do wrong, you will cut their heads off? Or that if they disobey you, they will cease to be your children? If I were to propound that doctrine, your children would grow angry at such a slander upon their father. They would say, no, we know better than that. Far rather would I say to them, my dear children, your father loves you and he will love you without end and therefore do not grieve him. And under such doctrine, true children will say, we love our ever-loving Father. We will not disobey Him. We will endeavor to walk in His ways. And I trust, if you're one of His sheep this morning, that is your desire, to love your ever-loving Father, to not disobey Him, and endeavor to walk in His ways. Understanding the biblical doctrine of eternal security will lead to a holy life. And so we must stand firm in it. Let's pray. Father in heaven.